John chapter 10, verse 22 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's once again ask for his help. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity and privilege to be right here today. And we ask for your help, that you would open our eyes to see and our heart to believe wonderful things that you reveal about yourself from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So from the reading of the text here, we see that the situation is is that this is the Feast of Dedication. It's an eight-day feast commemorating the rededication of the temple. So the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes had filled the temple with pagan idols. Then in 165 BC, the Jews, with the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, removed the Greeks and idols from the temple. This feast was what was instituted as a result of that. This also can be referred to as the Feast of Lights or what we now know present day as Hanukkah. It's wintertime. Jesus is walking in an area of the temple that uh, is covered, that had been uh, really just unobstructed from the desecration of the temple. It's referred to as Solomon's portico. So significant in this text as well is that we are nearing the end of the public ministry of Jesus to the Jews. This was one of the last direct encounters with them and front and center in this conversation is the person, work, and deity of Jesus Christ with a clear contrast of those who are his and those who are not his. So to put it in the simplest of terms, the Jews have a problem with Jesus. Jesus offers salvation and they reject him. So the outline is in three parts today. The first would be the question, the second would be the answer, and the third would be eternal consequences and benefits. So in some ways we can understand the, the, uh, the, the situation as kind of a Q&A with Jesus. So the question, we, we find this in verses 22 through 24, These Jews, they gather in this section that Jesus is at and they ask him a question. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So I guess the onset, this seems like it's a reasonable question. This seems like it might be a translucent moment where Jesus is given the opportunity in front of an eager audience to fully disclose 
who he is, who the Jews are asking him to, uh, or, or what they're asking him to declare. But it would be helpful for us to know what they are actually asking of him. They're really putting a demand upon Jesus. How long will you keep us in suspense? This is an interesting question and it's an interesting translation. So I'm not calling into question or really any disagreement with the English use of the word suspense. I imagine most, if not every translation that we have in here probably uses that word to describe the situation. But as I understand suspense, it's, it's, it's not used in the same way as I often understand suspense, as, as though we're sitting on the edge of our seat. And I shared with you one of the great joys that I have as a parent is uh, being able to uh, coach and watch my kids play. And every at bat, every ball that's hit to them, I'm sitting and waiting in suspense. It's as if every emotion that they are that, that I enjoyed as a player is coming to bear as a dad and a coach. But the Jews have something else in mind here. They're not waiting with bated breath, hoping to hear the Messiah himself say that he is the Messiah. They are asking this in an accusatory way. How much longer are you going to hold our life in balance? How much longer are you going to refrain from us what we deserve? We know this in part because they are demanding him to tell them plainly. So in a way, this, this question really is a it's a challenge to Jesus. They are in essence accusing him of not taking into consideration their life. You're holding our heart and our soul by not answering our question. So imagine posing that kind of question to the Son of Man. Imagine questioning the Savior of the world of his mindfulness or thoughtfulness of your life. So the table set, the challenge posed, the audience has gathered, here's the moment. Like is Jesus about to rip open his tunic and show the big M and lamb's blood that's coated on his chest in order to prove them wrong? He doesn't take this approach, does he? Here we see the answer, verses 25 and 26, it's twofold. He said, I told you and you do not believe. And the other aspect of that is he says, my works testify about me. Essentially, what I have said and what I do validate every claim I've made. What I've said, what I've done validates every claim I have made. They want, they, they, are, they are wanting him to say in their presence that he is the Messiah. Again, not because they're on the fence, but because they want him to incriminate himself, to go on the record, to give verbal and public declaration that he believes himself to be the Messiah, a claim which they already deny. But listen again to the two parts of his answer. I've said it, and my works that I do in the Father's name testify about me. It's often, I think, we find uh, the pattern with questions that are posed to Jesus is that he may not answer them directly, but rather answers the question in a way that exposes the sinful motives that occupy the heart. 
This encounter here is no different. I mean, he, he does answer them directly, um, but he doesn't directly come out and say, I am the Messiah. Is he afraid of doing so? Is he trying to sidetrack the issue? If he would have answered in this way, he would have given them reason to attack. We, we know that they're already primed for this. We can look at verse 31, that eventually they pick up stones again to stone him. So they're, they're primed for this kind of attack. They're wanting this. But rather he answers with what he has said and what he has done, and this is critical here, why they do not believe. For the Jews, those that are gathered here in this, in this moment, belief is, is, is nowhere on their, it's nowhere on their radar because they're, of their confidence in their heritage. So the Jews' problem is not tradition. It's not the awareness of the Torah, of the promise of the coming Messiah. They are well-versed in this. The problem is they are not his sheep. They're not his people. Words and works are not enough. I want you to pay close attention here, okay? Words and works are not enough. I, I, there's a sense where, in, in which I'm trembling as I attempt to explain why the words and works of Jesus are not enough. His words and his works can lead to salvation, but they can also serve as condemnation. I believe this condemnation will be part of the realized experience of those who spend eternity in hell. They will be consciously and eternally aware of the words and works of Jesus that they rejected and hardened their hearts toward. They will know as an eternal experience of his wrath that all that Jesus said and did is true. Philippians 2 is going to happen. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen. Judaism has never saved a soul. Heritage has never saved a soul. Grace Church has never saved a soul. No human sermon has ever saved a soul. Salvation is accomplished through Christ alone. Jesus said the words, I have told you. So what, what has he said to them thus far? So up to this point, Jesus had not publicly declared himself to be the Messiah. Privately, yes, but publicly he's not done that. And the reason being, as best as we can understand, is because of the political nature and misunderstanding of that title. They were, they were looking for an earthly political king. And Jesus realized, as he often said, that, that, uh, now, that now that it wasn't yet time for the Son of Man to be glorified. But here are some things that Jesus had revealed about himself. John 5. He describes himself to be the son of God. Also in John 5 and John 6 and John 9, he referenced himself as the son of man. John 6, 
He described himself as being the bread of life. And as we looked at last week, uh, John chapter 10, that he is the good shepherd and the door of the sheep. And also John chapter 8, that he is the light of the world. I've told you, and you did not believe. My works testify about me, the very works that I do in my Father's name, the miracles, the healings, the more explicitly Jesus' works testified that he had been sent by God. This was enough testimony for them. Jesus didn't come out and say, when they asked the question, okay, okay, I'm the Messiah, really, which was an act of kindness on his part. I want you to catch this. It was an act of kindness on his part toward the very people who were not kind and actually against him. He let them know in very crystal clear ways, the problem is not whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. The problem is their heart. The problem is their unbelief. And they didn't believe because they were not his sheep. He is saying to them in very certain and plain terms, remember they asked, tell us plainly. So he's saying to them in very certain and plain terms, your father is not my father. Your tradition is not my teaching. Your heritage or sense of belonging is not mine. He cannot be more plain than to say, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. It's an example of speaking truth in love. This text, as does others, underscores the necessity and work of the Holy Spirit in the declaration of the gospel. There was absolutely nothing wrong with the words and works of Jesus. There was nothing wrong with the physical ears and eyes of the Jews who were in his presence. They were simply not his sheep. You cannot make someone believe in Jesus. No amount of proclamation from your lips or testifying of God's work in your life can cause a person to turn to God or turn to the living God through faith in Christ. So maybe you're thinking, wait a second. We just interceded for a lot of lost names. There's been a whole summer emphasis uh, on this grill and gospel, having neighbors over and trying to take advantage of the opportunity of sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ. Are, are you hinting around that that's just, that's just a waste of our time? Absolutely not. What I am saying, and I believe this is on the authority of the Bible, is that God has to work in their heart through the quickening, regenerating, giving them a new heart and opening their eyes, work of the Holy Spirit before they can believe. Regeneration precedes belief. You do not believe and then become awakened. You are acted upon by the Spirit of God prior to belief. We proclaim God works. We share the Holy Spirit opens. He gives the very opportunities for us to testify about him either because there are those who are his sheep who are waiting to come into the fold or so that the words that we proclaim, the good news of Jesus Christ, could serve as an eternal condemnation for their hard hearts. It's Isaiah 55, 11. So it is with the word that proceeds from my mouth. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which it was sent. So we can boldly proclaim knowing that the Spirit of God uses His Word to either work obedience in the hearts of His people or eventually serve as condemnation for those whose heart 
is hard toward him. So no gospel witness is ever wasted. None. So what Jesus is saying here is in keeping with what he has already said in John. You remember John chapter 1 verse 13, those who are his children are born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John chapter 3, you must be born again. John chapter 6, Jesus says in two different places, verse 37 and verse 39, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And he says one verse later, in fact, he will raise him up on the last day. I think the Bible makes very clear that it only recognizes two spiritual conditions. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. You're either a child of God or you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. You're either forgiven or you're condemned. You're either hard-hearted or he's given you a new heart. You're either old creation or you're the new man. You're either loved by God or you sit ready for his righteous wrath to be poured out on you. There is no middle ground, none. There's no such thing as being close to God. There's no such reality that maybe my good might outweigh my bad. Jesus states it very plainly, which is what they asked. You're either his sheep or you're not his sheep. So let me say to those who are here who might be tempted to think this thought. I've got time. I can be patient. I can work my issues out. I can continue to consider and think and contemplate on the claims of Christ. You won't find a hint of this in the Bible as well. You won't see any hint of that once you figure out that you have a terrible sin condition, that you can repent whenever it's convenient for you or whenever you are ready. You will, however, see this, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent or likewise perish or Proverbs 29, 1, a person often rebuked who becomes obstinate will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. One day, God's going to break the neck of the obstinate because they will not listen to his rebuke. Loved ones, don't ever misinterpret grace or patience on God's part as passivity towards sin and holiness. I want to say that again. That, that, that might be the one insight that you take away from today to reflect upon. Don't misinterpret God's grace or patience, or excuse me, don't misinterpret uh, grace or patience on God's part as passivity or indifference towards sin and holiness. You don't get away with it. No one gets away with it. So what, what was the reason for their condition? 
We've said it a number of times. Say it again. They were not his sheep. They were not his sheep. Therefore, they did not believe. Richard Phillips said, unbelief is not the cause of man's separation from God, but the result and mark of man's separation from God. So third, eternal consequences and benefits. Verses 27 through 30, the explanation here that Jesus continues with, uh, there are at least nine very plain and clear declarations. Here they are in just bullet lists. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. These four verses are loaded with thick, wonderful, robust doctrine. We see here total inability, election, Preservation of his people, the deity of Jesus, sovereignty, omnipotence. You may find one that I, that I forgot or, 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 or hadn't seen. But in very clear terms, Jesus has taken the Jews to school on the doctrine of the triune God. Again, Phillips categorizes this section here as salvation through faith by hand, ear, and foot. So a simplistic understanding of the non-clear and or, or the non-plain and clear declarations. One is that Jesus speaks, knows, gives, and keeps as the second person of the Trinity. The second would be this. His sheep, his people, we bear the responsibility of listening and following. So it's clear what his work is and what entails our responsibility. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Psalm 100 verse 3, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 23 verses 1 through 3, the Lord is my shepherd I will not be in need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. A few weeks ago, we were in Florida as Blake's team was playing in the World Series. And this time of year in Florida, at least that part of Florida, uh, it's, just, it's just a crazy amount of people that are there. And so... In the ocean itself, I would say probably 30 to 40 people, maybe double to triple that, um, at least walking by or behind us. And so I was talking with one of the other dads, and we were kind of at the water's edge because there was just, I mean, there was just so many people. And we just wanted to keep eyeballs um, on our, our children at all time. And so in the, more, in the midst of the conversation, his son began to kind of drift a little bit further past the uh, umbrella that we had all designated for the boys to not go past. Well, he whistles, just whistles. And as soon as he did, his son's head popped up and turned immediately in the direction of his dad. And I said, man, that's impressive. Like all of this activity going around, not to mention just the crashing of the waves and you whistle and he just immediately knows exactly where you're at. 
looks right at you, you give him kind of the, or whatever indicates you get, and he, he kind of knows what to do. He said, yeah, from a, from a young age, with our two boys, we kind of, we established that as a way for them to recognize we were trying to get their attention. So it doesn't matter where they are in the ocean or out on a sports field, we can whistle and they know exactly what we are trying to say to them. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. His sheep recognize the voice of Jesus. The main voice in our head must be the undiluted voice of Scripture. Not your interpretation or another's interpretation, not your presuppositions that we all bring when we're trying to understand the text, but the pure reading of God's Word. That must be the dominant and prominent voice that we listen to. The pattern of the Old Testament is that God used prophets in the New Testament. He has Jesus, letters that were circulated, even scrolls that were read among some of the fellowships. Today, the primary source for listening to the voice of God is the Bible. That is the source for listening and hearing and obeying the voice of God. We are sheep whose ears must be aligned and tuned to the voice of God. A way that we know that we are of his fold is that we digest the word of our shepherd. There are many competing voices in our life that um, some of them might have some semblance of Bible, but can, if we're not careful, be harmful or even dangerous. Let me give four categories. One would be our own presuppositions. What do I mean by this? That's like uh, questions of uh, what do you want the Bible to say? What do you think it should say? We, we've tried to avoid that question in our, in our small groups because uh, we don't want to ask that question. Well, what do you think? Because in all reality, it doesn't really matter what we think. Like to think, is that important? Absolutely. Please, by all means, think. But we have, to, we have to have that thinking be informed by the Scripture first and throughout. Another one is sinful desires. This voice gets in the way of God's voice. This happens when we begin paying more attention to the voice of desire, our own sinful desires, and then we attempt to rework the Bible in order to fit that sinful desire. Let me help you with this one. Romans 1 describes this as suppressing the knowledge of God. And Romans 1 condemns that. Don't listen to your sinful desire. It has never, ever helped a soul obey God and live a holy life. Culture, the voice of current cultural trends begin to take root in us more than scripture. And then the temptation out of this is to bend the knee toward culture rather than standing 
for biblical truth. And the last category would be tribalism. I think the problem with tribes are tribes themselves. When the prominent voices of each tribe capture your heart, you lay hold of their talking points more so than the voice of Scripture. And I'm urging you, be, be careful. I'm warning you with all of these. So let me ask this question. What voices are loudest in your life? Who has your ear? Who has your mind? Who has your heart? Who has your thought life? What's laid hold of that? If it's anything than the very clear voice of God through His Word, then I would encourage you to repent. Run, run back to your chief shepherd. Seek His face as you pray that He would open your eyes to see and your heart to believe wonderful things that He reveals about Himself from His Word. Because His Word will speak into all of those categories that I just shared. Jesus said, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. The contrast, to me, the contrast here is just remarkable. Like Jesus knows the Jews and he says they're not his sheep. He contrasts that with his sheep whom he knows and whom he gives eternal life. There is nothing more terrifying and wonderful than being known by God. Nothing more terrifying, nothing more wonderful than being known by God. It's terrifying in the sense that Hebrews 4 says that nothing is hidden from his sight. That, he, uh, that Ephesians chapter 3 says we are by nature children of wrath. Terrifying that Romans 3 says there's nothing good within us. This is our resume. This is who we are without God and without hope. Yet it's wonderful in the sense that God has sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. He has sent Christ to be the Savior to bear our sins and to deliver us from the domain of darkness and to transfer us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. What a glorious exchange this is. For His sheep, He gives life that's eternal. Enter into the joy of your Master. An inheritance that Peter perfectly personifies I believe with today's text in view as that which is this, this inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, it will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. It's protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Romans 11, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Jesus says, no one snatching my sheep out of my hand. No one snatching my sheep out of the Father's hand. The Father is greater than all. The thief, he's not going to do it. The robber, he's not going to do it. The wolf, he's not going to be able to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm so immensely thankful for this section of Scripture because I would rather put my confidence in God's grasp on me than in my ability to keep myself His. I think a healthy awareness of our capacity to sin should help us realize we live moment by moment as if we are on the edge of God's hand about to jump off. 
as if the slightest wind of our own sinful behavior could thrust us over the edge from his hand. I tremble at how close I am to making destruction of my life and causing others to mock God on behalf of my sinful behavior. I believe it's precisely this awareness that leads to the most frequent prayer I offer, God, make me a holy man. In other words, I'm confessing to God my weakness and the possibility of making shipwreck of my faith while simultaneously realizing it is He who keeps me. He preserves me. He lets me see the outcome of my sinful pursuits and gives a foretaste for how unsatisfying and displeasing sin is to Him. I think this is preservation of the saints realized. Greater is his power. He's not a hired hand. He's not going to give up on any of us, even though we give him plenty of reason to do so. We saw this pattern with God in the Old Testament. His people would rebel. He would provide a remedial judgment. He would bring them back to himself to show that he is God and they are his people. This pattern foreshadowed, revealed, and accomplished in the death, burial, and resurrection of the good shepherd who laid his life down for his sheep and took it up again for the glory of the Father. He's not going to let us go. The Father is greater than all. Let this security motivate your love to Jesus. We love him because he first loved us. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and will preserve his sheep for all eternity. This is why we can listen and understand, why we can follow and obey him, the unending cycle of the Christian life. He loves, we love. He speaks, we listen. He commands, we follow and obey. He is greater than the most powerful allure of sin that we experience. You may think and describe it's, it's just too great. It's just too great. I can't, I, can't, I can't wade through this. I can't have victory over this. He's greater and more powerful than that. Though the external powers against us are extreme and the internal desires that intrude our life are strong, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Paul said in Ephesians 3, praying that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened in the inner man with power through his spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith so that we be rooted and grounded in love. So you, you see how he's working on behalf in the strength of his might for our holiness. Jesus told Simon right before he would deny him three times, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. I'm praying for you that your faith would not fail and that when he turned back, you would strengthen your brothers. That's how Jesus is praying for Simon, that your faith wouldn't fail, that you would be of strength and encouragement to your brothers. We won't be snatched out of the hand of the Father's hand. It was the hand of Adam that reached out and took the fruit in the garden and ate. 
sin entered the world. It was Cain's hands that killed his brother Abel. It was because of sin that the ground was cursed and made labor with the hands difficult. Now contrast this with Exodus where God says he will reach out his hand and strike Egypt with all his miracles so that Pharaoh would know who is God and let his people go. And then later on in chapter 13, when the Lord said, remember this day in which you departed from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. It's the, the, the same hand in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It is the same hand here in John chapter 10 that keeps us. Jesus holds, protects, guides, and preserves every soul that the Father has given him. Jesus, I and the Father are one. Carson, D.A. Carson describes this as Jesus and his Father are perfectly one in action in what they do, what Jesus does, the Father does, and vice versa. Morris takes note then verse 30, the statement on the unity between the Father and the Son is noteworthy due to the fact that Jesus links it with the care that both the Father and the Son have for the sheep. Take heart. God the Father has made the plans to secure his sheep. The Son is sent to accomplish the plan of the Father and the Spirit procures or guarantees this work of redemption and seals it. It's for the glory of God to secure God's people through the finished work of Jesus Christ. The triune God through the person and work of Christ and the enabling of the Holy Spirit is going to pursue, protect, and preserve his people. He will pursue in the sense that he's going to overcome the sinful heart in a way that brings a stark and accurate reality to sin's bondage while esteeming Christ as the remedy, the hope, the savior, and joy of the soul. He will protect in the sense that there are going to be difficulties without, those which are external and within, those which are internal. He protects from the evil one. He protects us from our inner temptations by holding out the beauty of Jesus in his word. Listen to his voice. He preserves in the sense that evil will not overcome us. Suffering will not have the final say. Death will not receive the final victory. His love is made secure in the resurrection and eternal life made certain through the bodily return of Christ in the final judgment. No one is brought kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. There's no other entrance into his sheep pen, sheep pen than through the door, Jesus Christ. If you deny Christ, you're not of God's sheep pen. If you do not hold fast to the confession of your faith, you're not his people. If you deny the deity, the atonement of Jesus, you are not of his flock. You can live a significant part of your life looking and appearing like a sheep, but if you suppress the knowledge of God in a Romans chapter one sort of way, in order to obey your own sinful desires, you should have zero confidence that you're the Lord's. First John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be evident that they are all not of us. So what am I trying to do here? Am I trying to scare you? Not at all. It's a loving plea from one of Christ's under shepherds to say to you, to say to me, 
that we must not take our eyes off Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen and follow. Listen to him and follow him, which is the same as saying love him and abide in him. What we learn in John 10 plays out today as well. The words of Jesus give life for some, while for others, it's like a boulder tied to the neck. The works of Christ are for some praiseworthy, while for others, despised. So let me ask you what's happening in your heart right now. Does, does the, not asking about the sermon, or just, the, just the reading of God's word. Is that, I mean, is that causing you to worship or are you just sitting back there saying, man, please shut up. God's preservation of his people, which I think is a better description than perseverance of the saints because it puts the accent on God's work, is on play here. Practically speaking, and in my conversations with people, I try to conclude every conversation with hope. Sometimes that's harder than others. On some occasions, the only hope that I can offer is repentance. However, identifying hope, even in some of the hardest and most complex situations, is in part informed by this passage as well as other texts about God preserving his people. His sheep will not be snatched from his hand. His love and reputation are what is at stake among the holiness of his people. That's, kinda, that's the kind of hope that's offered there. So what's the end game? These eternal consequences or eternal benefits. The consequences would be eternal wrath. The benefits are eternal life. So in hardship, know that your shepherd is near, that he's, you know, that weeping may last for the night, but there's a joy, a shout of joy in the morning, that he has a bottle for your tears. He's aware of every tossing in the night. That's Psalm 56. He's active. He's present. He will neither, he will neither sleep nor slumber. He will keep you. He's not a hired hand that's going to leave his flock in danger. He's the one who will deliver his people from all iniquity. It may not happen today or tomorrow or even while on this earth, but one day he will deal out retribution in a second Thessalonians one kind of way to all who are not his fold and to those who do harm to his loved ones. Psalm 91, go read it today. You're thinking about it, aren't you? The good shepherds are security. Contrast Jesus' approach to the Jews with his love for his people. If he's that gracious and merciful and truthful toward those who are trying to ensnare him, imagine how gracious and merciful and truthful toward those who are his sheep. That reality, I mean, it just stunned and stopped me in my tracks on Thursday at 1222. I threw my head down in praise to the Lord. The contrast, he, he's showing grace and mercy to them. They hate him. I mean, they're about to pick stones up again. Contrast that to his tenderness and his gentleness to his sheep. To hear him say, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. No one's going to snatch them out of my hand. No one's going to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Father's great. To hear him say that, to be loved by him, secured and kept in him. 
Carson's closing comment on this section. He said, the Jews had asked for a plain statement that would clarify whether or not he was the Messiah. He gave them more, far more. And the response was the same as in John chapter 5, verse 18. They sought to kill him. The same as John chapter 8, verse 59. They sought to stone him. It was the same response. So how do I hope you respond today? I hope that you're not inclined to respond as the Jews did in the very next verse. I hope that's not what's happening in your heart right now. Rather, it's my prayer that if you are his sheep, that you will in the wonderful realization that you are kept by him to endeavor all the more to listen to his voice and follow him with his joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the precious work of Christ. And we plead with you as those loved by you, kept by you, that you would help us to be sheep that uh, incline our ear to your voice, to listen and to follow with joy all of your commands. We ask it for your glory and for our joy in Christ. Amen.